Hello and welcome to the Powering Independence podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, Chief Administrative Officer at Dynasty Financial Partners. And today I'm joined by Anand Sakar, a Vice President within the Practice Management and Consulting Group at Fidelity, where he's been for almost 17 and a half years. Anand has had roles in marketing, product strategy, and operations. He started his professional career as a brand manager with Procter & Gamble, he received his BS in chemical engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and his MBA from Babson. If you don't know who he is or if you haven't heard him speak, you're in for a treat. I'd like to give a warm welcome to Anand Sakar. Anand, thanks for joining me today. Uh, Austin, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Other than uh, that rousing intro that I shared, uh, would you mind uh, spending a little bit of time talking about yourself and your role at Fidelity and the path uh, that you've taken in your career so far? Sure. Uh, you know, I don't think it's uh, fair to say that you know people would say, you know, gosh, you're a chemical engineer. How the heck are you um, working in the advisory <laughs> profession, right? I think that is not the necessary the most linear paths, um, and. Uh, it's fair to say that I've had a couple of different twists and turns, and I think it's actually epitomous of what we see now for a lot of uh, perhaps Gen Xers that I, I'm part of, but then also the millennials and Gen Z, which is I've had six different careers across this journey um, that started out as working in a plant, doing operations kind of stuff, to being in marketing at Procter & Gamble, to um, doing that at Fidelity, to now what I get to do, which is the way I like to think about what I do now is um, really uh, being a catalyst for the transformation for the businesses uh, that we get the pleasure of serving um, here in Fidelity Institutional. And a lot of our clients are in essence, you know, as some might define them as small business owners, you know, defined by the Small Business Administration with less than 500 employees and they're wearing multiple hats. And, and we just get the, you know, really the joy of walking alongside them and helping them with seeing things perhaps differently than how they've seen them before. And a big part of that is getting them to focus on um, them on the business versus being, you know, perhaps in the business. And as, as you know well, Austin, advisors are really good at serving their clients, um, but they often miss the opportunity to pick their heads up and look around and see how can they help um, their business as a business. It's, it's a very similar analogy to how doctors are really good at serving patients and oftentimes um, ha you know, struggle with perhaps running the business aspects. And I think we get the great pleasure of, of in a similar parallel, um, being able to help our clients with uh, their business overall. And you mentioned the word, uh, which I think is incredibly important around being a catalyst. And so for me, when I think about catalyst in regards to or in relationship to uh, what you do from a practice management standpoint, a lot of times it comes down to asking the right questions of those individuals and helping them to focus, to your point, on the business itself. So when you think about that, what are some of the big questions that you end up speaking to financial advisors about? And what are some of the, the answers that may be the most surprising to you that you hear on a daily basis? Yeah, you know, right now, it's interesting. I, I think this has evolved over time, but I'll, I'll give you a few of the things that have come up of note recently, which has uh, been very fascinating. So. We've had, um, you know, as, as you and others know in the industry, our industry is not getting any younger as fast as it needs to. And so one big issue that we're facing from a lot of advisors right now is how do I think about success plans? So a lot of questions we're asking is, is you know, um, do you have the internal organization um, ready to, in essence, take on this legacy, this, this, um, this entity you've built? Um, that's been one that's been at the forefront of our mine for a long time, um, that, that stats um, haven't changed much. Um, you know, two thirds of firms do not have a succession plan. Um, and that's been the case for literally probably the last 10 years as long as we've been doing our benchmarking study. Um, and it, it hasn't moved at all. That's one that's top of mind. That second thing, and it's increasingly coming up. The second thing that's coming up is as advisory firms, especially RAAs have grown over the last several years, one thing that keeps coming up is really challenges around scale. And the crux of it is, is that, you know, our, we've done a lot of work with firms around segmentation and we have this really cool, interesting tool called the Client Insight Tool, which helps them understand things like, such as their demographics of their client base, who are they serving and how are they serving them. But what it also does is understand how profitable and how are they priced relative to benchmarks. And what we've found is, is only about, um, on average, 
about half of your client's book is profitable. And what, what that tells me is that, you know, a lot of times advisors, when they first start their uh, business, their practice, they probably took on anybody that, you know, had a, um, had a pulse. And over time, they realized, gosh, my target market is more specific than that. And we need to perhaps be taking on individuals that are within a certain asset range or revenue range. And gradually over time, they still have those clients, though, that perhaps they brought on when they first started their first 10 years. And it's, it becomes a scale issue, um, you know, from a resource consumption perspective. Uh, and even when advisors think that they aren't necessarily spending time, their staff might be spending time with those individuals. And again, if you had 100 clients, 50 of them are literally, uh, you're running a nonprofit. Now, I do believe in, in the value of pro bono work, um, just the context and how it's done should not be perhaps in how most um, advisory firms are architected today. So that's been the sort of secondary um, thing. Um, and then the third thing I'll give you is uh, really conversations around where you're spending your time and how are you doing that in such a way that is maximizing your time in front of clients. You know, it's um, our research would show us as well as other industry stats would show that about an advisor's time is only 50% of the time in front of their clients. And a parallel can be drawn to the medical community. If I think about um, doctors, you know, doctors, um, they, they refer to themselves as working at the top of the license a lot of times. How are they, in essence, working in such a way that they can be um, in front of the right patient for the right complex situation? You know, I was talking to my sister about this and she explained this situation where she's a radiologist um, down in Atlanta and she explained to me that she wants to be looking at the most complex scans possible and actually being um, valued in that way versus more routine things. And, and she's set up her organization in such a way where she does that, where residents and fellows that are training under her um, work on the more routine scans. And, and even if you think about a typical medical practice, they have nursing assistants and um, nurse practitioners and, and PAs that support that. And I find advisors um, don't necessarily surround themselves with the right organizational capabilities to be able to do that. And so 50% of the time is spent on things like compliance and technology and perhaps trading. All things that I know you all at Dynasty Austin help an advisor alleviate so that they can be spending their time in front of their clients. So that's a, so the third year. So the first thing, again, succession. The second, I think, is scale. And the third is, is where are you spending the time and is it spending in time in front of the clients and where you find joy, honestly, um, and why you got into the profession, solving client problems. Yeah, I am going to try to unpack those three with you collectively. And I think something that you said around uh, the third, the element of where you're spending your time ties very closely back to the first around succession plan. And your statement around advisors uh, may may not have the organizational structure to allow them to spend more time on higher value tasks. I might also argue that sometimes advisors, even if they have the right organizational structure in place, have this issue with letting go and um, giving up an element of control, even when they know it's in their best interest. So you can sit there, or I, I just say personalize it, I've sat there with CEOs of these wealth management businesses. And when you ask them, you know, how many clients are you handling as a relationship manager and trying to do the, the job of a CEO, the answer oftentimes is confounding to me. I don't understand how they could continue to do that. And if you tie that back to the first one, which is around the succession planning, which, you know, is something that's pretty prevalent within our network as well, it's this whole element of control. Fundamentally and logically, and even when you think about the statistics, quantitatively, it makes sense for older founders to create systems and processes that would allow for them to move out of uh, the position of CEO or managing partner and move on with their life or do other things or get the business ready for a sale or an acquisition. But so oftentimes they can't do that because they're unwilling or unable to give up control or just too hard for them to wrap their minds around what's the next step. So I, one, do you see that in your work? And then two, what are some techniques or tips that, that you could share for someone that's contemplating succession around how to get their, their mind and their heart in the right spot to make that move? Well, I'm not a psychologist, so with that preface, I'll tell you <laughs> that uh, this is this is one that I think, Kenley um, Allison, I think I think we we probably all struggle with in, in some aspect of our life. If we're all being honest, right. right? Is 
is where am I perhaps trying to control things? It could be like, how am I trying to control how I raise my kids and what my kids do? For those of us that are parents out there, um, we all can appreciate that because our kids make poor choices throughout life. Um, even my parents would say the same about me. Um, and and so I think that um, control is it, is hard. It is the fundamentals of it, it come down to um, we try to control more than we perhaps um, actually really have um, the ability to be able to do. And what I think is um, important for uh, advisors who start out as advisors and then become CEOs is to realize where do they actually get joy and where do they actually um, want to be spending their time and how are they going to actually deliver the most amount of value to the organizations that they work with um, and for. And, and I think actually spending time to actually self-reflect. If they actually did a time study for a week and actually reflect on, gosh, I'm spending time in areas that I don't enjoy and it's just a time suck and it's not actually generating value um, to my clients, nor is it delivering value to my entity that I've built, then I think there's almost a self-realization that I should be doing things differently. I, I don't think and I don't um, believe that advisors actually spend the time to actually pause though long enough to actually take that, um, to actually do that, to do that assessment. Um, I think that's where it starts, right? right? Um, they just, they're, they're just solving yeah. one client problem after another. They're solving their internal problems one after another, and they don't actually take the time to just actually take a step back. The second piece is, I'll just say, is, is I think um, fundamental to this is being able to recognize um, once you've realized, gosh, this is where I get joy and this is where, to actually be able to trust and empower somebody in an organization to actually take the reins. So... Right. right. This is important. It, it is, to your point, succession planning 101. It's, am I willing to say, all right, so I'm going to trust a operations person to now do all the trading versus me doing my trading. It is the trust to say this junior advisor who I've been developing and been in meetings can take on, say, 25 percent of my buck, um, perhaps over the next three months and perhaps 100 percent of the buck in the next year to two years to three years where I can just be in a meeting. Um, Tactically, I'll just give you one piece of like, like you know, tactical. I saw one advisor do this really well. So they'd be in a meeting. Um, the senior advisor would be in a meeting with a junior advisor. And he said to the junior advisor, you know, this this woman he was training, you know, if I'm, I'm going to have you take the lead in the meeting. if And this was back when we were all face-to-face for majority of meetings. And if in the meeting you yep. need me to um, speak up or say something, I want you to just move your pen and point it towards my direction. So... The advisor, um, the senior advisor, empowered the junior advisor to have the voice in the meeting, right? In a very right. inclusive way, and and therefore the, um, and the senior senior advisor is creating the space though, so that I'm not I'm giving you a rope long enough to hang yourself at the same time, providing you a way out. Because um, a lot of times junior advisors may not feel confident. Either. So I think it's a it's a it's a both it's a, there's two sides of it as well. Is you have to make sure your organization is ready um, for that control to be right. given up as well. Yeah. And for me, removing the emotion as much as possible is is really important because it should start with a goal, right? Your goal is either to um, spend more time doing things. And you use the word joy, which I love. But I also think maybe spend time doing things that you're actually good at because we're human, right? We're not all good at everything. So you may think that you have to do these things because you're the CEO of an organization, but some of those things that you're doing, you're just not good at. And you may not like it because you're not good at it or it doesn't matter, chicken or the egg. You should be focused on the things that you can do that are impactful to the organization and that you enjoy doing. Coming back to my point around the plan, if you remove the emotion and you say, here are the things that we need to do in order to sell the business or in order to move the business to the next generation or in order to find and selling and, and merging or you know, somewhat similar, moving the business to another organization. Here's the timeline that we need or that we want to get to. And then breaking things down into bite-sized pieces, hopefully through that process, you're able to give up some of the control because you're doing it in smaller increments. But it's hard 
right? You have to take that step and make the decision. I'm going to leave the business in 2025. And in order to get that point, I need to do these things. Or I'm going to create a scenario by which I'm focusing on things that are generating revenue or managing people. And I'm going to give up things like controlling the finances or running the operations or trading the portfolios. But unless you're very deliberate, and to your point, it's very difficult in our industry because we all get wrapped up in the day-to-day, but we need a little bit more, I think, self-reflection and being very specific and clear on our goals. Now, the second point that you brought up in these three um, items that you're talking about, asking questions around scale, to me, to simplify scale, I think of it as being able to do more with less cost. And that cost can either be financial or human capital cost. And it's thrown around like it's a term that everyone should understand what they're doing. But I really like what you said around looking at the way in which a client generates revenue versus looking at it in a very blunt way of saying assets. So oftentimes I hear, you know, our goal for this year is to bring on $50 million worth of assets. And I say, that doesn't matter to me. And then sometimes I get a quizzical look and they'll be like, because it, what is that $50 million generating for you? How do you define what is a profitable client? And then the last piece, which I'd like to, to you know, get your insight as well, if you hear these conversations, sometimes it could be a client that doesn't generate a, 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 a tremendous amount of revenue, but is a really important source of other business development. So the end client value is much more than just them themselves, but the potential for um, having other people come in based on their relationship. Like how do you, when you're talking to advisor, talk to them about segmentation and looking at clients or households um, individually? Yeah, let me um, start with first off, one of my biggest observations of our industry that I've struggled with, you know, you've mentioned I was, you know, previously in my past life, a partner in Gamble. And when I was there, I was on the, um, both on the uh, paper top business bounty and then also on the on the toilet paper business charmin and i could tell you fascinating stories that could be perhaps a whole podcast in by itself on the toilet paper business um the most interesting thing of the whole thing if you if you just look at um most other industries is they all know their cost of goods sold yet when i go to an advisor and i ask them what their cost of goods sold is is i get for the most part blank stares from 95 percent of the advisors when i first meet with them and like, what it puzzles me about that is we, we operate in an industry that will, will dissect down 10Ks, 8Qs, and all sorts of other financial statements to be able to invest in a particular publicly held company. And would we ever invest in a publicly held company that does not have a cost of goods sold? I would be hard pressed to say you would ever invest in a company that didn't know their cost of goods sold. And yet we are that industry. So I think where it starts is, do you know that? Do you know what your cost of goods sold is? Like, you know, so sure, advisors know at the top of the house, my margin is say 30% or 40% EBOC or, or EBITDA or what, um, what have you. But do you actually know what the cost of goods is sold? So you know your contribution margin on a, on a per client basis. That's where it starts. So that's step one. Step two, I think is, is once you know that, then it's, are you then therefore pricing in a disciplined manner? We, you know, we look at, we look at our, our client data, and, and let's say the cost of goods sold is on average. We, we, we see it anywhere from around $5,000 to $10,000 on average um, based when we start doing work with clients around this uh, question. So are you, in essence, saying that, gosh, you know, it, the way we've constructed our value proposition, the types of services we are going to deliver, we're able to garner, and we actually, first off, it costs us $7,000 to deliver that advice, and we're able to garner at least say $10,000 to make sure that we're um, having a profitable, every single client relationship is profitable on day one. And, and I'll, get to, I'll get to the referral piece in a second, but, but really it's, it's first understanding that and that equation and, and understanding are you actually doing that. The, the, the second piece of that is, is the actual variance on pricing. What we see is it's just baffling is, is that you charge all over the map um, in an inconsistent manner. If you have a if you, if you have a team of say ten advisors, one advisor is charging fifty basis points for a three million dollar client, and another one is charging eighty, and another one is charging the rack rate of say ninety, and and that is like we do these scatter plots that just are eye opening to advisors to see the discrepancies that exist advisor to advisor, but then even within one advisor, 
we see discrepancies for a host of factors because you know they got pricing pressure perhaps from the client or others. So that's the other thing is this, is are you actually um, exhibiting pricing discipline, especially for your smallest of clients that are driving scale issues because they're not profitable? Um, and, the, right. and then the last thing I'll just I'll just touch upon your um, your question around sort of how do you deal with then you know other tangential value? And I'll I'll, I'll look at it a couple different I look at it a couple different ways. Ideally, what we the conversation we have with our clients is, what is the lifetime value of this of this customer, and. And the way to generate that is not easy in our industry. The way to generate it is, is looking at referrals, is looking at revenue at all, from all sources and, and investing ideally in provenness and not potential. This is really important. You know, a lot of our clients will say, oh, we're investing in these Henry's, these higher earners not rich yet. And the reality of it is, is that our, what is the hurdle for them to get to profitability? How long do you expect to invest in this, in this lost leader, as some might say in other industries? before they become profitable. So that's the first part. So let's say you invest in a Henry, they have $500,000 to you today, and you're expecting over some time horizon that they're gonna get to your minimum fee. So one firm that we worked with said, you know what? We have this rule of five and 10. Within five years, they're gonna be at $10,000 in revenue. And, and if they aren't, and we have this conversation up front, when we, they first on board with us, then if they're not, they are going to pay, in essence, $10,000 beginning in year five. They know that going in. They have that conversation with that client. Secondarily, the other um, things to consider, like you alluded to, was referrals and or other revenue drivers. So if they're bringing in, are you attributing back um, any of that additional revenue back to that uh, client who is a center of influence as much as, as they are a um, wonderful um, client uh, in and by themselves? So I think it's, a, it's an and, um, but we do think that a, a big part of the modeling needs to be able to invest in provenness over a period of time. You can't just invest in potential. Okay. I'm going to pivot to uh, something a little bit different. And, you know, when we think about the the evolution of the financial advisor, words are really important. When I started, it was a broker, and then it moved to a financial consultant, wealth manager. Now, usually you see or hear some form of uh, wealth manager with holistic uh, as part of the uh, describer, the adjective. So <clears throat> those those different words, I think, also imply that the end consumer has different expectations. So for you, Anand, when you look at the, the environment and the different types of generations, what are they thinking about and how have advisors changed their practice in order to keep up with the end consumer? And how much more do they have to change as technology continues to, to move forward and create new ways of interacting with the, the end consumer? Yeah, uh, it's a fabulous topic to um, spend an entire podcast by itself on just on you know, what are we seeing from a generational perspective? I'll, I'll just give you a few things that we're, we're observing. So, you know, one of the things that we came up with probably uh, now about five years ago is this idea of an advice value stack. And it's based off of um, almost akin to a Maslow's hierarchy of need of, um, and it was, it was um, taken from a white paper we had read um, titled The Elements of Value um, that was written in Harvard Business um, Review by Bain Consulting Firm. And in this article, what they talked about is, is that basically taking a Maslow's hierarchy of need approach, there's things that any good product or service needs to offer that sort of uh, table stakes and functional at the base of the pyramid um, and there's higher level needs that, in essence, um, you know, would in essence drive a deeper level of loyalty. And and the goal for those good providers are is to get as many of these sort of levels as possible. So think Amazon, Amazon at the bottom of the pyramid, in essence, uh, ships goods and that's, you know, their functional table stakes. And, and they started out just shipping books, but they expanded to shipping other things. So they do it very efficiently. But and we all expect that. But really, if you think about it, like higher level needs are a simplification of life. A good example of that is those little dash buttons. If you if you have those on your laundry, you can, in essence, reorder laundry, a detergent um, or milk on your fridge um, through the Whole Foods partnership. And, and even so much so that even Alexa will now notify you if you run out of things. It did this to me just a week ago where it told me that we needed to reorder masks because... Um, my daughter specifically wears a different size and they knew our buying patterns and how often she's using them for school. And, and so she, they, Alexa it prompted me to say, do I want to reorder our masks? And that's sort of 
is anticipating my needs. And so when I think about, um, we took this, this approach and we translated it to our industry and we said that the base of the pyramid is managing money. And, and that is everything from cash flow to budgeting to investments, which of course everybody thinks of when they think about managing money. Um, above that is um, things all around goals and, and making sure that you're helping your um, clients with everything from college planning to retirement planning goals and others and classic financial planning one-on-one. Above that is peace of mind, which is how do you help um, your clients really feeling organized and making sure that they're in control. And then above that is really all about fulfillment. And that is at the hallmark of leaving a legacy and being perceived as the advisor that's able to help your um, your clients with leaving that legacy. And when I think about the, the journey that an, an um, investor goes through with um, an advisor, we find in our industries, historically, many advisors may have started on money management and evolved in essence to become being perceived as this multi-generational advisor. And that is really, truly an honor to be in a privilege to be able to be perceived and viewed that way. One of the things that has happened as we've communicated this, and I think as others have, have recognized this, is has been this aspect of um, pivoting and evolving. And what we find in our research is, is that baby boomers historically have had um, very different expectations, you know, um, very much meet in person versus meeting digitally, and complexity of life is very different. Um, and now, you know, if you think about everything from the amount of career changes, so on and so forth, very different. The, um, so I'm just going to illustrate sort of the need for advisors to be able to move up this value stack and be able to engage um, and hopefully an example that um, will resonate with this audience. So my wife's uncle is a geotechnical engineer in the state of Vermont. And so he drills little holes in the ground. And as part of that, you know, he needs to be able to uh, tell the people that are building bridges and roads in, in, in the state of Vermont, are they building on sand versus bedrock? Build a successful business. He calls me one day and says, "On, and I need help with my succession plan. I, my very first question to him was, is have you talked to your financial advisor knowing he has a financial advisor? And he said, no, I don't think of him that way. I think of him as my money guy. And this is an issue in our industry is our industry has historically been at the second call, third call, maybe even the fourth call. And in the case of my wife's uncle, he called an accountant, an attorney and me before even thinking about maybe calling the financial advisor only because I prompted them to think about that call. And, and the issue is, is in all of those cases of the people he called, one of us could have introduced a financial advisor that is exclusively focused on small business owners and transitions. We know those advisors exist. And so this is an offensive as much as it is a defensive play um, with regards to how you're being perceived. And we know from our research that in addition to this difference in generations around baby boomers and silent generation being perhaps a little bit less complex, especially the silent generation, and also the needs of Gen XYZ being really willing to pay for more at the top end of the value stack. We also know that what is also concerning about some of the research is, is that less than 10% of the time that the advisor is the first call for most life decision moments. The only one that stands out where the advisor will get a phone call is if they receive a financial wealth windfall. Most other life decision moments, the client is going to call that other trust advisor. That's accountant, an attorney, that could be perhaps another advisor in their life, um, uh, lots of other things. So, you know, lots of examples to give. For instance, I'll give you just one more example. If you're sure. changing your job, you may need help with compensation uh, conversations, especially if you're an executive. Who will you call? Will you call a compensation benefits consultant or will you call an advisor first? Maybe you would probably call a compensation benefits consultant. And that's just an example. And then will they introduce an advisor that's not you, who specifies, specializes in that firm and that in that specific industry, so on and so forth. And so and, and so that's um, part of the reason why we think that it is really important to be positioned broadly, but then also being top of mind beyond just the money and not just those financial goals to get beyond that. Right. So let me reframe what you just said and and talk about something that I think is also a challenge for our industry and wealth management advisory business overall, which is the fact that in order to get to become a multi-generational advisor, it, it, that that terminology would imply that you have exposure and access to end clients that actually have 
a need for multi-generational planning. And if you look at, I believe, and this is going to be an over-characterization or um, generalization, if you look at the advisors that are dealing with succession issues or the ones that make up the primary populace of um, wealth, wealth managers today, they grew up in a system that is very different than what we have today. They more than likely grew up in a system where working really, really long hours and cold calling prospects was an effective way to build a business. Now, I'm not suggesting for anyone that's listening that you can't cold call. What I am suggesting is, to your point, the higher end of the value stack uh, involves different types of skills. I'm not suggesting that hard work isn't still a relevant and valued uh, way to build a business. I guess my question is, how are we as an industry creating a way for quote unquote junior advisors or young people to the business, one, to enjoy what they're doing, and two, to get the skills and training required in order to be that advisor who can deliver the higher parts of the value stack uh, to the end client? How do we do that? I think that's a big problem. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, there's, there's two elements of it. Um, and our Fidelity Center for Family Engagement often talks about this, uh, this evolution that needs to happen in our industry around um, the mindset of the advisor has to change um, as much as does the skill sets of the advisor, right? So if you think about it, you know, classically, an advisor from a skill set perspective may have been historically focused around, say, getting a CFA, and now they need to evolve to getting their CFP also or and instead of because that helps them focus on planning. Just that's one example. Right. Um, another, uh, right? That's just a very tactical example of, of like how, from a training perspective, things need to evolve and or have evolved. Um, additionally, I would say that um, what also needs to evolve is the willingness for advisors, regardless of, of where they are in their journey, to start being willing to ask questions they don't know the answer to. I think there's a phenomenon that happens from advisors. Um, that they worry about asking questions that they don't um, know the answer to because they're worried about being perceived as not being an expert. They right. want to be the expert on everything. And by being curious about your clients, I think you'll find over time that you will engender higher degrees of loyalty because you're getting to know them so intimately and understanding what really value what the what their values are versus perhaps their valuables, and that's really important to them. Yeah, you know, my wife, my wife, my wife and I went to just another person. I'll give you a person that my wife and I went For to sure. um, with a philanthropic consultant, and they helped us um, identify using this card sorting exercise. What were our values with philanthropic giving? Up to that point, you know, anybody asked us for money, we would just give them whatever. And what it did for us is it narrowed it down to four areas, of which is all centered around local social justice issues, domestic violence, opioid addiction, um, whole, uh, sort of food insecurity, and, and homelessness. And in those four areas now enable us to say, you know what, 90% of our giving is going to be within a 10-mile radius of our home in those four areas, nothing else. And then 10% could be for you know, the Boy Scouts, which my son's involved with and, and or other organizations that people come to us for. But that clarity it provided to get to those values and then that we want will want to pass on to our kids. It takes asking questions that, you know, weren't just around how much money we want to donate, which right. is, is for tax purposes, perhaps, and or our own um, philanthropic goals, but rather getting to a deeper level of intimacy with us around helping us actually make that kind of guidance and decision. And I think that advisors may be not willing to go to that level um, because they're worried about, again, it opening up Pandora's box and being feeling feel like they need to be a therapist. And I, I don't think we're asking advisors to be a therapist. I think uh, another good example, you know, people assume when you think about that value stack that I articulated, the managing money does not have um, any aspects of um, EQ in it. And the reality of it is, is that some of the best advisors I've had the pleasure of working with um, help people with even basic amounts of uh, budgeting and cash flow management. And that is 
behavioral finance one-on-one. How, if, if you've ever worked with a client, um, and my wife and I do this in our free time outside of work, we work with a lot of couples that are in massive amounts of debt. One of the most humbling things you can do is sit down with a couple and help them get out of debt. And that's very much an emotionally intensive exercise. Never mind you know, the stuff that is at the top around dealing with family conversations. Um, getting people to change their finances from being a spender to a saver so that they can meet their goals and not be able to worry about um, spending down their money. Those are all, so the EQ element of this is, is huge and I think our industry um, from a mindset and also from a skill set, we do need more EQ type of knowledge um, that complements the IQ elements and that is also um, builds on top of the technology solutions that are out there that are, that are coming into our industry right now at a rapid space. I mean, FinTech is obviously clearly exploding at a faster rate than any of us can keep up with. A lot of the FinTech is going to amplify a lot of the skill sets. It will not, though, eliminate the need for an advisor to be able to ask these good questions, to be able to engage with our clients, and that mindset shift is necessary to be able to do that. Yeah, let's stick on that point, um, which is to, to say, what are some of the forces that you see that are creating innovation in wealth management? And what do you think the future looks like when you combine the EQ of a financial advisor with the predictable um, algorithms of technology um, for the end consumer? How do those two things come together? Yeah, you know, our, uh, I'll give you a few things that I think about. So FinTech, you know, it, it's the amount of spend that's happening, um, you know, hundreds of financing um, deals are happening over the last year. Um, I think over a billion, almost a billion dollars or close to that in, in just the last year alone. Um, so massive amount of um, inflow. And what is interesting about it is, is that it's a lot of times existing fintechs versus new ones also. Um, so adding on new capabilities to existing fintechs is, is a key thing that we're um, seeing a, a, you know, evolution of, you know, sort of one, one firm adding on new products and services to expand and to become more and more relevant for those advisors. So that's definitely feeling that. One of the things that I think is really interesting is, is that how are um, advisors gonna leverage these FinTechs to in essence be able to deliver to a consumer what they see in other tangential spaces. So, you know, an overused example is, you know, Amazon and the Alexa story I gave for my personal, it's how it anticipated my needs. How is an advisor based off of your spending habits and or other decisions you make in your money, um, whether it's you log into your account online and you're interacting, you're looking for certain things, perhaps you look at your stock performance, would it, based off of artificial intelligence, prompt the advisor to say, you know what, um, you need to call this uh, client because they've gone online three times in the last week as there's been volatility. And they've been looking at their balance, they've been looking at the market trends, um, and therefore, you need to call them proactively. Does it tickle the advisor to call because you know that this client is nervous about the markets? Right. That's one example. Or they're spending um, a, a significant amount of money and you didn't you know, have a conversation around goals and, you, and they just bought a car, hypothetically. And does it prompt them to, um, to, to a, a have a conversation with them around that and, and a fruitful one around perhaps you know, how that impacts their goals? And ideally, it would be even before that. It'd be, you know, perhaps some aspect of their behavior online that has to predict that the advisor needs to engage before they even buy the car. So those are the types of things that I think about is how can we use um, the, the rapid advances we're seeing in technology to then drive the advisor connectivity. Um, I don't think it's, um, uh, it's all by itself. Um, I do think one of the things that's really fascinating is, is that, you know, our industry struggled for a long time with a trust factor. Um, and, you know, and the consumer from a trust perspective, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about, but a lot of times the tech sector um, has really pushed the forefront around um, trust and to ease, make things easier from a simplification perspective. I mean, think about like how, easy it is to do things on Amazon, but we've given up an aspect of our privacy and or right. um, to drive that personalization, right? The consumer, I think, struggles with that though in this space. And I think we need to build trust with them to uh, make sure that they feel comfortable with because it's gonna provide an easier experience, a better experience, all of that. And so there's a, there's a tension point then that I think is playing out 
around um, privacy relative to ease of use, simplification, and the customer experience overall. That I I, I hope um, we are able to uh, you know be able to be enabled because they've you know the the customer has done this in other areas of their life. A hundred percent, and I and I think not. I think I know. Again, not to stereotype, but there's generally two camps. Camp one is someone that I would call like myself, where I actually really enjoy the fact that so many of the different apps that I use are very predictive of what they are showing me, and it's right. I mean, my wife is like Instagram probably knows you better than I do, which is funny because just the things that I buy from my interaction with that app are are pretty regular, and they make sense to my personality, my taste in clothing or sports or whatnot. And so the other camp is, you know, big brother, big sister's always watching. And I'm deathly afraid that at some point I'm going to get hacked and lose all of my assets. And so there may be truth in both. But to your point, from a financial service perspective is how do we take these rapid advancing advancements in technology and connect it to what we're so good as human beings around DQ and being able to explain the data in a way that makes sense to somebody so that the end goal, which is that the consumer have the best outcome possible, mates with both. And I think there is a case for both being able to do that. I think if we had more predictive analytics to the stories that you just used, you might be able to protect somebody from making really bad financial decisions. Like if you could illustrate, if you do this, just so we're clear, if you had the predictive analytics to say, this person's about to do something stupid, stupid is probably the wrong word, that's, they're about to do something that's not gonna put them in a good place financially. And then you could illustrate to them, like here's what's going to happen if you make this decision. Maybe that's too restrictive, maybe that's too much of an invasion of privacy, but if ultimately what we're trying to do, you know, as advisors and people working in the financial industry is to help our, our consumers have better outcomes, I don't see how this couldn't help. Yeah, it would seem more positive than negative, um, especially if, if the consumer is doing this, you know, elsewhere already. Right. right. I think that's the key. The key linchpin of this is, is that they're already making the choice in other areas of their life. So now can we can we as an industry say that, you know what, um, this is in their, their uh, again, back to a fiduciary standard, this is in your best interest. We are always operating from doing this in your best interest. I think if we, if, as long as we do not lose sight of that and, and make sure that it's not perceived as being self-serving for our benefit, I think that's gonna be a key aspect of it is, is that will the consumer, um, you know, the families that our advisors work with, well, they'd be able to see that, gosh, you know, my advisor is is watching enough for me right. and really does care enough to make sure that I make good decisions, just like a parent cares about their kids and making good decisions, right? Yeah. And if I was listening to this and I was going to play the opposite side, it'd be very easy, right? Which is, you know, you're going to find, someone's going to find a way to use predictive analytics to generate more commission or uh, generate more fees by you know, placing something, whether it's product or advice that they're gleaning from, you know, scraping someone's data. I get that. That's, that's a totally fair point. However, I still come back to what we were just talking about, which is if you could create a system that could protect people, like at, at the very basic level, I mean, think about credit cards as an example and how much debt people get themselves into. I mean, you were just talking about what you do with your wife and helping people get out of um, financial trouble. My guess is that most of them don't understand what the choice that they're about to make with credit is and then end up owing lots of lots of money with ridiculous interest rates associated with it. So they're in a hole that they can candidly almost never dig themselves out of. But what if there was you know, some sort of technology that could monitor this? Obviously, the credit card industry would probably have a problem with this, but could monitor people based on what their income is and the debt that they're getting themselves into and suggest you should not be doing this. Just let me call this out. You're making bad financial decisions. Maybe that doesn't change anything, right? People still have their own free will. But if you had that, could we, as an industry, 
protect our consumers better? I mean, I don't know. What What do you think? Yeah, you know, um, behavioral finance is a hard one, right? It's um, right. are you are you going to, in essence, be able to um, help change the trajectory of somebody? I think somebody has to believe. Um, so you know, my uh, I'll give you a couple of I'll give, just give you one example. So. Um, one of the fundamental things we're seeing um, as my wife and I do that work when we sit down with a couple is one of the biggest issues that our, um, really our, our industry is facing is for Gen Y and Gen Z is student debt. And, and the magnitude of it is, is mind-blowing. So, you know, I, I've, my wife and I were um, talking to a couple where the, um, the wife had close to $120,000 and um, student debt, graduating with a social work, master's in social um, work. And the reality of it is based on her income potential, there's gonna be literally almost no way for her to pay that down in her lifetime almost. Like by the time her kids, like her, and they didn't even have kids yet at the time. Right. By the time their kids might be graduating, they may have, you know, a chance to, uh, chip away at it but the, the the amount from when she took on the debt to when we met with her five years earlier had increased from one hundred twenty thousand dollars to one hundred sixty thousand dollars because she had been only paying the minimum and this is the issue is is that um is that if you had a conversation with her before she decided to go to a private institution for that degree knowing what she would be making at the other end it's a business decision as much as a financial decision as much as is an emotional one Right. And this is the crux of the issue is, is that emotionally she was like, oh, I want to go to this really good school for the experience and whatever else. And I think I'm separating out um, for, you know, just even as you are thinking about like the, the role you can play as a financial advisor to help parents realize this for their kids when they go to school. Sure, you probably can send your kid uh, that could afford this, but really it's a it should be as much an emotional decision to, do, to encourage your kid to go to the school as much as is a financial one around what is their major, what are they going to actually get on the other side of this? And that's not like, I, I know some advisors want to avoid that conversation because it me, it's so like playing, it's not my space to play in that space, but I, I would encourage you ask the questions. What's important about it? I mean, there was a Wall Street Journal article, I think over the weekend about veterinarians and how they come out of school basically with this massive amount of debt, like med school debt. And, mm-hmm. and you know, coming out of school like with $200,000 in debt and they don't make enough money. Veterinarians don't make enough money, even though for some of us who have had pets or have pets, no, we spend a lot of money at the vet. It's, they don't make enough money to pay down that debt in a reasonable amount of time. It's years, decades that they're paying down that debt. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I think that that, you know, this is a crux of, of the issue. And I think advisors, back to what I said earlier, asking questions we don't know the answer to, to prompt in a humbly curious way, it, it, being inquisitive about our clients, and then doing, you know, we, as, as you all well know, Austin, we, you know, we all need money and we do believe in the um, fundamentals of financial planning, asking those questions, but then you can model out for, the, uh, for your client, here's what happens from a scenario perspective. If you do this, this is what your, um, your, your son or daughter's income is gonna look like, having those types of conversations. But it starts with understanding like, what are those values you wanna pass down? Is it is a value, like one, one thing we're trying to make sure we teach our kids um, is, is this aspect of being able to be financial stewards and being able to understand how th- much things cost at an early age and make mistakes early. Not make a mistake when it's $100,000, when there's, you know, literally six, des- you know, six decimal places. We want them to make a, a, a mistake when it's only two digits, right. not six digits mistakes yeah Two digit mistake, right so and, and i think a role a financial advisor has a huge opportunity to play in that in that space yeah i like the 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 phrasing of being humbly curious that's, that's super cool um last concept to talk about today is and this is something that you know i've, I've discussed with others before is this whole concept of the the wealth management entrepreneur and, and startups as you know we we do a lot of work with um, advisors who are leaving traditional financial institutions to start their own business. And all the things that entails, setting up their own entity structure, working through operating agreements, figuring out compensation, career path, marketing, etc. And I often say that, you know, as an entrepreneur, wealth management entrepreneur is no different that every day 
feels like a tragedy. It's just a question of whether or not the tragedy of the day is going to take down the business. And so we talked a little bit at the beginning around how to focus on being in the business versus um, not. And I'm just interested in in some of the things that I guess the, the big mistakes in your work that you do with wealth management entrepreneurs uh, that they make and how can uh, people considering becoming a wealth management entrepreneur, uh, you know, keep safe or stay out of making those mistakes? Well, I think one of the biggest ones, which I think you all help solve for is um, realizing that, you know, you're an advisor today. And do you actually want to be not just an entrepreneur, but also a owner operator? And there's a very important distinction here, which is, you know, do you want to be involved with the details around compliance and technology and um, every aspect of marketing and um, and understanding the marketing technology landscape? Martech is a really emerging um, space for advisors to play in. All of these little elements can take a ton of time. Again, back to where we started some of this conversation around, you know, 50% of the time advisors spend is, is only in front of their clients and it's not where they get joy, nor where they add the value. And and, um, and it's not maybe their area of expertise. Like I don't think any many advisors would say that compliance is their area of expertise. Right. So one of the things I have, you know, the big question, the biggest area of opportunity I find for a lot of these, once they um, build this, you know, from a firm, you know, they, they leave an advisor, leave a warehouse, let's say, or somewhere, um, and they leave with, say, a few hundred million dollars, and, and there's a, uh, and perhaps, um, you know, two to $4 million worth of revenue, let's say, and they leave with a team. So let's say there's a hypothetically a, hand, a couple of advisors and a support staff of three to four people and a total team maybe of, you know, somewhere around seven people to 10 people. And they created this entity. And now they're wearing all these different hats. They didn't have to at wherever they were before. And they're like, gosh, I, I, I'm loving what I do. I, I love the aspect that I can control and, and have so much more control over my client engagement and my experience and all that. That's all well and good. And I control my technology experience, but that all comes at a cost. Right. And and this is the issue that I think many advisors don't realize. If you want to work at the top of their license, you got to outsource some things. You got to realize where am I going to be able to find scale and leverage by using whether a dynasty and other solutions that are out there. And so the crux of this is is that do you really want to be a true entrepreneur, which is also meaning you want to be an operator. Or do you want to find the right ecosystem of providers that enables you to have the right solutions and uh, capabilities that actually enables you to be good at and focus on what you do well, which is probably where you started your career, which is working with clients yeah. and and accentuate that. And, and I suspect you wouldn't have been doing it as long as you have as an advisor if it wasn't for giving you joy as well and delivering value to your clients. Great. Well, I want to thank you, Anand, for uh, for spending some time with me today. Really appreciate it. Um, and I uh, hope you have a happy and safe holidays for the, you and your family. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks so much, Austin. It was a pleasure. And um, thanks for inviting us and, and allowing us to be part of this and curating this conversation today. For sure. Have a great day and have a happy holiday and happy new year as well to you as well and to your family.